wanted to remind you that there, there are the uh, sermon handouts back on the credenza. If you'd like to grab one, I think that I made a few this morning. And just wanted to encourage you that either way, I think the, the main thing is, is that you, whether you take notes and, uh, you know, on a, just a blank piece of paper and you write down the scriptures and try to follow as best you can during the sermon and you have to go back and, and look, uh, or you take the sermon handout and you make, you make some notes, it's okay either way. Um, we just want to be helpful in terms of you getting the sermon and I think helpful also in the, the care groups that you would be able to use those notes to study and, and inform yourself more of uh, what's in this, these passages as we go through them. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm glad that you've joined us as we continue this series we've called Preparing for Battle uh, from Ephesians 6, 10-24. I want you to know, especially on a day like today, it's, it always reminds me that I'm so thankful to be a part of the body of Christ at Grace Bible Church. When we first came to Gainesville, we didn't know what to expect. We knew that it would be difficult. We knew that it would be difficult to, to plant a church here. I think it's difficult to church plant no matter where you're at. Um, church planting is an interesting uh, and, and yet a, a difficult endeavor. You truly know, don't know, that is. You don't know what path the church plant will take. Each one has its uh, unique stories. Angie and I have been a part of now three church plants and we're thankful that all three are, are thriving today, uh, including this one. I just saw uh, the one in, in Columbia, South Carolina. They're overflowing in a building that they're in, and so they're having to really work on the seating. And so I'm just thankful to see that, thankful to see that and was a, to be a part of the beginning of that church and, and, and the other one in Nevada. Well, you know, I would venture to say that most people think of church planting as a series of tasks to be completed you have to go out and find like-minded people who are willing to give up the comforts of an established church. You should have a sending church or have a, at least a group of churches that support the endeavor. You have to identify men who have the humility and giftedness to lead as the church is established. You have to seek a good place to meet. You have to establish your doctrinal statement and your philosophy of ministry. You have to have a pastor who is willing to forgo a larger ministry for one that probably cannot fully support him and his family. You have to begin to establish ministries such as worship and the pulpit ministry, and you have to think about hospitality as a, as a ministry to ensure you don't develop an us-for-and-no-more mentality. As the church grows, you have to establish a children's and youth ministry. Planting a, a church involves these things and, and, frankly, so much more. Bank accounts and have to establish with the state and all those things that we have to do legally. It's truly a monumental task to plant a church. Thankfully, in all these things, we can trust Jesus' promise that he will build his church. I was telling one of you uh, not long ago, they were, you were asking about the church and it growing, and, and I was saying that you know I, I trusted the Lord to build his church when it was small or very small, and now that it's grown a little bit, I'm still trusting that he'll build his church. It's not about me. But it's true that planting a church includes those tasks that I mentioned, but I would argue establishing a church is more about standing firm on gospel truth than it is about completing a bunch of tasks. Pastor Don Green loves, says this about church planting, that is. He says, preach the word and deal with the consequences. And I can say that's what we have done here at Grace Bible Church. And let me tell you, there will be consequences when you preach the word because satan does not want a church to be planted and he certainly doesn't want a church to flourish therefore he will oppose the church at every opportunity he loves to make the ground as hard as possible quite frankly he would be just fine if we get lost in the details of our of details of our plans and as such, we, we can have the, the latest can't-miss model, that is, of church planting. We can establish our core group and have the hippest meeting location. We can find just the right musicians who are the best at creating a great atmosphere for, for worship. We can do all those things and miss the most critical aspect of church planting. 
Stand firm. Stand firm. I believe this is what Paul had in mind as he penned this letter to, to the church at Ephesus. He knew that Satan would continue to oppose the gospel going forth. He recognized that he would try, that is the devil, would try to stop churches from being planted. I believe this really forms the backdrop of Paul's final exhortations in this letter. Now, in the passage we find ourselves in Ephesians 6, 10 through 24, we find the instructions for standing firm against the devil's schemes by putting on the full armor of God. So let me read, pray, and then read the text, and we'll get started. Pray. Heavenly Father, just pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, superintend this process. May I preach with clarity. May the Word do its work. We know that you promise it will not return void. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read Ephesians 6.10. I'm just going to read 6.10-17. through 17. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In a story that only Florida Gator fans would appreciate, in August, ESPN reported that former Gator standout and New York Giants first-round pick Kadarius Toney's opening practice did not go exactly as planned. The problem became evident when he was running an individual wide receiver drill Friday that, that Friday uh, without one of his football cleats. Now, some of you have, may have heard of shoeless Joe Jackson. Well, this was shoeless Kadarius Toney, at least for one practice. Uh, shoeless Kadarius Tony or Shoeless KT was born out of necessity because of what he termed the wrong-sized cleats. Tony was seen fiddling with the right cleat early during Friday, Friday's rookie minicamp mini practice. And at different points during the workout, he changed cleats, added socks, changed socks, worked with the equipment staff and even the athletic training staff. He even kneeled to the side and would look downright uncomfortable at times. It's fair to say that he didn't start out on the right foot. Instead, he started out with a bare right foot. Tony said afterward, I think they did the wrong size. Just figuring it out right now, I ended up getting it eventually. Well, I'm not sure that was completely true, because according to the story, despite returning for a special teams drill late in the practice, he was on the side as his teammates run, ran conditioning drills to finish the day. This uh, incident made for an unusual first impression, no doubt. Thanks, thankfully for KT, uh, day two started out much better as he took the field in two properly fitted cleats. According to his Instagram account, he had signed with a new apparel company, and I'm certain that Adidas was embarrassed by the whole debacle. How do you overlook double-checking to ensure that your star has equipped himself properly? According to the article, the camp was designed to orient the rookies to the league, but the coach probably didn't think that meant figuring out what shoe size would fit his top draft choice. Earlier, I mentioned shoeless Joe Jackson. Jackson was a professional baseball player for the Chicago White Sox in the earliest, early 20th century. He was accused of participating in the Black Sox scandal, a conspiracy to throw the 1919 World Series. He got his nickname during a game played in Greenville, South Carolina. Jackson had blisters on his feet from a pair of cleats, which hurt so much that he took his shoes off before he was at bat. As play continued, heckling fans noticed that Jackson was running to third base in his socks, and they called him Shoeless, which resulted in the nickname Shoeless Joe. 
later in his career, Joe was banned from baseball, and even, it is even now banned from the Hall of Fame because of his involvement in a gambling, uh, gambling problems with, or gambling on his team. Despite the troubles, the catchy nickname continues to be famous to baseball fans everywhere. As for KT, he continues to have problems. He's currently sidelined with a right ankle injury. The injury probably has nothing to do with the missing right cleat. Get it? Right ankle, right cleat. But who knows, right? As you can see, though, these two stories have a common link. The importance of having the right equipment, particularly the right shoes. Can you imagine a football player showing up in ballerina slippers? Or a professional basketball player wearing cowboy boots? Sometimes great athletes can overcome wearing the wrong shoes. Jim Thorpe famously won two gold medals with two unmatching shoes he found in the trash. Someone had stolen his shoes prior to the first race, and he was forced to improvise. So he had to wear extra socks to make them fit. But we have to have the right shoe. I remember when I was young, I generally had one pair of shoes. I had to wear my dirty old tennis shoes to church or to any school functions. But I rarely had the right shoes for the occasion. Considering where I'm from, I'm astounded that we spend so much money today for shoes for every occasion. If you have daughters and, and a wife, you know the importance of having just the right shoe for each situation in life. Vanity may not be the best motivation for wearing just the right shoes, but in sports and in the military, you must wear proper shoes to win consistently. Well, as it turns out, having the proper shoes for the occasion is biblical. Is biblical. So, ladies, I'm giving you a, a, a little bit of ammunition. According to the Apostle Paul, the Christian must wear the right kind of shoe as part of the full armor of God. Now, as we've seen in this current series, we are in a battle against the spiritual forces of this darkness. In this battle, we are called to stand firm. He says it four different times. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. As it turns out, you need to have the right kind of shoes made for resisting the schemes of the devil. Now, as I said earlier, we are returning to Ephesians 10, 6, 10-24, and today we are continuing the section which began in verse 13. Now, in 6.13, which we looked at two weeks ago, Paul re reiterates the urgency for the Christian to take up the full armor of God to be able to resist in the, in the evil of our day. And in 6.14-17, Paul gives six critical pieces of armor for resisting. Now, Let's quickly review and get up to speed. In the first two chapters of this letter, Paul reminded the Ephesian church of their standing in Christ. <clears throat> the members of the church at Ephesus had been slaves to the evil system that controls this world. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul reminded them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, and they formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the, air, of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But through the blood of Christ, they had been redeemed, forgiven of their trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. After listening, after hearing the message of the truth, and this is important, the gospel of salvation, they were sealed forever with the Holy Spirit of promise. God used the same power that raised Christ from the dead, raised, raised Christ from the dead, he used that same power to raise them up and seat them in the heavenlies on the throne of the Father in Christ. Now, these are amazing truths to all of us who have been purchased from the satanic system that currently controls this world. As wonderful as these truths are for all believers, they, were, they should have been especially amazing for believers who lived in that ancient world. You see, when we become Christians in the United States, our lives are probably not impacted as greatly by the change. Now, you could argue that they should be. Now, yes, the spiritual change is profound when we become a Christian, and I'm not certainly not downplaying that. But most likely, you stayed in the same house. Most likely, you drove the same car, and you worked at the same job. <clears throat> but we should recognize that for the church at Ephesus, they probably endured profound changes in their lives. They, they may have even lost their livelihoods. 
The, the church itself stood in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. The evil system of, that was part of that temple was in view, full view for them to see. Now many of them may have even supported themselves with the trade that surrounded the temple. Now I am certain that I'm certain that they felt profound pre- pressure to surrender to the evil around them. Now Paul, <clears throat> now Paul, their beloved leader, was writing from jail. This, this church was struggling with those difficult realities. Think about the situation. They're there in, in the, the shadow of this temple with all the evil that was going on around. And their leader, Paul, who had been with them for three years, was now in, in jail. Uh, he was in jail for pre- preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, I would argue that these pressures, these pressures precipitated that Paul write this letter to Ephesus. He was concerned about them. He wrote to encourage them uh, to not give up hope and to continue the ministry which Paul had started in Ephesus. Now we should recognize that chapter 3 of this letter is intensely personal for Paul and the church. In that chapter, he urged them not to lose heart. (coughs) Specifically, in 3.13 he says, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 16, he personally prayed that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Just listen to his, listen to his prayer in verses 17 through 19. He says this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now I think we have to recognize the spiritual nature of the battle for the hearts of the Ephesian church. You see, Satan desired to demoralize them. He he desired to render them ineffective. He wanted them to believe his lies. He whispered, "Your, your leader is in jail. You can't. You can easily support your family if you just return to the temple business. Hey, it's okay if you enjoy just a little of that forbidden fruit of the temple trade. The, the, Ephesians, the Ephesians were in grave danger of falling for his many wicked schemes, not to mention a lack of unity within the body. Now, it's with this that as the backdrop, he begins to write Ephesians 4 through 6. Now, we know from our study that these chapters are structured around five walk statements. Now, these walk statements are incredibly practical exhortations to show how the Christian is to live considering the truth of the gospel. Now, when I say practical, I mean that these exhortations must be lived out practically in our everyday lives. Now, I would argue that Paul's exhortation in 610 to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might is also a practical exhortation. Albeit, he closed this exhortation in, in symbolic language as he describes the full armor of God. Now, let me say it another way. We are truly involved in a spiritual battle. Now, this battle may be spiritual in nature, against a spiritual enemy, but it has some very practical implications in our world. These implications may include broken relationships, church splits, strife among the brethren, people following, falling away, factions, shipwrecked faith. I guess that's people falling away. The, the point is, is that the armor that Paul describes is spiritual armor that's provided by God, but this armor represents some very practical actions that need to be taken as Christians to avoid the implications that I just described. Ultimately, we must recognize the spiritual nature of division, even division about mundane things like the color of the carpet. The the full armor of God gives us strength to stand firm and to resist the onslaughts of the devil when they come. Therefore, if you want to resist in that evil day, we need to be prepared by preparation one. We've seen this before, girding yourself with the belt of truth. Uh, We looked at this uh, last week, and we saw that this is not just knowledge of the truth or or its content. We we saw that we certainly need a, a knowledge of the truth. We need to understand the truth. But Paul's point here is that we need to be prepared. We need to be ready for the truth or with the truth. 
Now, this piece of armor speaks of an attitude of readiness. Uh, we, are, we are not ready to battle for the truth until we have girded our loins with the truth. This means that we need to be fully prepared for the battle uh, for the truth, or to battle for the truth. We know the truth. We love the truth. We've counted the, the cost. We are ready to fight for the truth. We will earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must be then committed to the victory. This leads us to the second preparation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's in 6.14. We studied this preparation last week. Paul exhorted the Ephesians to put on the breastplate. Well, what is that breastplate? Well, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible best captures Paul's intent. Stand firm, therefore, with the belt like with a belt or truth like a belt around your waist, and righteousness like armor on your chest. So the breastplate that Paul is talking about is in fact righteousness. Now we saw that there are two choices as to what Paul means by righteousness. This could be the righteousness that God imputes to us as uh, to us on the basis of faith, or he may be referring to uh, righteous or holy living. Now I landed last week on the, the latter. Paul is referring to us leading righteous lives. Now I have a couple of reasons for this. Paul, first, Paul instructed the church to put this righteousness on. Now that verb indicates an action on part of the listener. On the other hand, God clothes us with righteousness at salvation. So we already have that, that righteousness. This, this truth is captured in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you are in Christ, if you have believed in him, you have his righteousness through faith in him. In Philippians 3.9, Paul calls the righteousness which the righteousness, this righteousness, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, I would argue that then you cannot put on clothes which you're already wearing. Does that make sense? I have a second reason then that I think he's talking about practical or holy living. Back in Ephesians 4.17, I, I, I want us to walk through this for just a moment. In 4.17, he exhorted the church, he said this, So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer uh, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. According to Paul, the pagan Gentile mind had been rendered useless. They had become callous because they had given themselves over to sexual sin and to every kind of greedy impurity. Then in 4.20, he reminded them, that they, they, that the church, the, the Ephesians, had not learned Christ in this way. Now look at Ephesians 4, 21-23. He says this, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to the, your former, former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, back when we went through this section, we saw, back then, we saw there were two ways that you could translate these verses. Now, in this case, in, this, in these verses, I believe that the Holman Christian Standard Bible, again, is correct in their translation. Just listen to this. This is how they translate this verse. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus, you took off, your former way of life, the old self that is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, if taken this way, the laying aside of the old self occurred at salvation. Let me put it to you this way. There is no more old man. You have been made new. Now look at 424. Again, I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. He says, Paul says, you put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Now let me just put it to you this way. At salvation, you laid aside the old man and you put on the new man. And here's the, the, the wonderful truth. You are now a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
There is no mix. You are new. You have been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 captures this amazing truth. He, he, Paul again writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. It's simple as that. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, I want you to notice Paul's argument back in Ephesians 4. Don't, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. You didn't learn Christ in that way. You have laid aside the old self, and you have put, it, put on the new self. Therefore, therefore, so that's the truth. Therefore, you are to stop sinning and live righteously. That's the rest of chapter 4. In, a, in effect, he's saying, your actions should reflect your position in Christ. You have been raised up and you have been seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Therefore, your life should reflect that new position. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 6.14. Now, we know that Satan can't harm us any more than God allows. Uh, the very righteousness of God has been imputed to the believer. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit within us. With that being said, then, here in Ephesians 6, his main point is to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul is not giving that exhortation from a positional point of view. You see, Satan is powerless to do anything to change our position in Christ. He can do nothing to change our position in Christ. We have been, again, sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ, yet He can and He does attack us. He does. Therefore, the full armor of God is our defense against those attacks. As for the breastplate of righteousness, I don't think Paul is referring to imputed righteousness because he's calling the Christian to live righteously as a result of who we are in Christ. This is a righteousness that we can put on. It makes me wonder, have we put that righteousness on? Have you considered your life and how you're living is it a life that captures the attention of, of Satan? Well, Paul captures all this in 6.13, Romans 6.13. He says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, if you don't buy my explanation and you think it's the righteousness that is given to us by faith, that's okay. If you have the righteousness of God, if you've been imputed the righteousness of God, then clearly you should live according to that righteousness. Your action should match your position. And ultimately we end up in the same place. With that being said, let's look at the third preparation. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, your bulletins may say something a little different than that <clears throat> because I changed my mind on what it should say. So if you'd like, just mark out what's, what it's there and, and change it to shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And this is the only one we're going to look at today. I uh, am going slow, I know. But you're probably used to it if you've been here for a while. Look back at your text in 6.15. Paul writes, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The, the verb translated shod in the, in the New American Standard means to bind or fasten. The word has the idea of binding with straps. When used with reference to the feet, it usually means to put on sandals. Since Paul is using the example of a Roman soldier, then we should take some time to understand the sandals of a Roman soldier. Now, upon just initial inspection, the, the sandals of a Roman soldier's were, soldier was pretty similar to the sandals, sandals you might see today. They were primarily made from leather and were fastened to the feet with 
leather cords that went around the ankle and partway up the calf. The, the leather was hard and durable to ensure that nothing penetrated to the soles of their feet. They were also built to last for lo the long distances that the soldiers had to march. Now, as you may recognize, the soldiers' feet were incredibly critical during their, their very long marches. Now, since the sandals were made of leather straps, they were light and well-ventilated. This allowed the, the feet to breathe and to stay cool even on, on hot days. The sandals were made to be tough, durable, and functional. Now, it's hard to, to think that they had comfort in mind in making them, but one can imagine that wearing these sandals for many miles, they, those sandals would have molded around the feet, and the, the, le the leather would wear some. The, the soldiers' feet would have been tough, therefore the sandals were probably fairly comfortable for the soldiers' even though they marched and ran for long periods of time. Now, there was one major difference between the sandals we might see today versus those worn by a Roman soldier. The soldier's sandals were fitted with metal spikes at, at the bottom of the sole. These spikes helped maintain their footing when in the midst of the battle. Now, Paul, in, in, in Ephesians 6, 10-14, <coughs> Paul repeats the words, stand firm, four times. Four times. Now, these spikes allowed the soldier to stand firm in the battle. Now, you can imagine that the, the soldiers were, would fight on slick, muddy terrain, and, and during the battle, the, the grass and the soil would become slippery with dew, rain, or even blood. The spikes on the, the bottom of the sandals helped the soldier maintain his footing in the battle. It helped the soldier stand firm. In my introduction, I mentioned Kadarius Tony. Can you imagine him putting on leather-soled dress shoes to, to replace his ill-fitting football cleats? That, that would be absolutely disastrous. Well, the sandaled spikes were similar to modern cleats for athletes. Therefore, the, the sandals of the Roman soldier provi uh, provided, that is, a very similar stability. Now, now, you have to imagine that these sandals were designed for hand-to-hand -hand combat. So when they were engaged with the enemy, they had to remain on their feet. They had to be in a steady, steady position. A soldier who slipped and fell was at a great disadvantage to the enemy, who, was, who might have been still standing. So ultimately, these, these sandals had one main purpose, to keep the soldier firmly standing on his feet during the battle. Now, there may have been a secondary purpose for the spikes. Uh, that, that could have been for defense. Earlier, I mentioned a man named Jim Thorpe. There's a famous picture of him standing with two different cleats as he, he took them out of the trash can. In that picture, you can see the steel cleats in the front of his shoes. They literally look like nails. Now, can you imagine? Have you ever heard of getting cleated? Can you imagine getting cleated with those? Well, in the old days, athletes would use those spikes to, to cut open an opponent. In the case of a Roman soldier, he could use those spikes to defend himself if he got put into a bad position. Now, having said that, why well, I believe that Paul had the idea of standing firm in mind. But it isn't completely out of the realm of possibility to envision the shoes as part of the soldier's defense. Now, look back at your text in 6.15. We've seen the command, and we better understand the soldier's sandal, now let's look at, at what we are to shod our feet with. Notice that we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now I want to point out here that it doesn't say we are to shod our feet with the gospel, but with the preparation of the gospel. So what does Paul mean here? Now I would argue that he's speaking of the believer's readiness or preparation with the gospel. When Satan assails us, we are to be prepared to withstand his attacks. Then the question then becomes, what are we to be prepared with? The gospel. Now, when we think of the gospel message, we automatically think of the message of, of the gospel which we are to share with others. But we should acknowledge that the gospel message, that the gospel message should never grow stale in the heart of a believer. When, 
when believers forget the beauty of the gospel, we grow weak. As Christians, we are to live then with the gospel foremost in our minds and hearts. Now, quickly, let me give you four encouragements about the gospel which will carry you through the battles of the Christian life. The first encouragement is you should intimately know the gospel. The good news of the gospel should be a constant encouragement to your heart. The gospel should be a sweet sound to our ears. In 2 Peter 1.12, Peter writes to a group of Christians who are suffering for the name of Christ. He writes this, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. In, in that case, Peter assumes that they already know the truth of the gospel. They, they, he, but he wants to remind them anyway. That th- this really underscores the critical nature of knowing the truth of the gospel. I, I think we all recognize that when Satan attacks us, I, I can promise you I've talked to many Christians, that when Satan attacks, when the, the, the world is on top of us, we get amnesia. You all know what amnesia is. We forget the good news of Christ's victory. We forget that we were, se- we were separated from our Creator by our sin and face the eternal wrath of God, and that Christ, we forget that Christ has defeated sin and death by suffering and dying at the cross. We forget that Christ has been resurrected from the dead and has been raised up and seated in the heavenlies at the Father's right hand. And we forget that He has crushed the head of the serpent. We forget that He has defeated sin and death. We forget that we now are in Him. We forget because we have spiritual amnesia as soon as the bad stuff starts happening. We forget that we, are saved, been sa- we have been saved by grace through faith and that we have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies and in His triumph, we have triumphed. We live in this state of amnesia forgetting that in Christ there is no condemnation. Second encouragement. You should recall the gospel when you in- encounter various trials and suffering. One of my favorite scriptures reminds us of the gospel truth as we endure these things. Romans 8, 28, we, we say it all the time. But do we really believe it? I think that's the question. Do we, really, do we really, really, really believe this? Especially when the going gets tough. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen to this in Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The point is, the point is, this is the greatest promise that we can hear as believers that our salvation is as good as done. We might as well, we are in, in spiritually sitting in the heavenlies right now, but we, even though we're suffering today, we can have that, take that promise and we can believe that promise and it doesn't matter if we're suffering. It's the greatest promise. Good is done. That's, by the way, being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Certainly we need to share the message of the gospel with those who aren't believers. But as Christians, we must never forget the goodness of God to save us and deliver us. Even if He doesn't deliver us from our afflictions today. He will ultimately do so. Beloved, no matter what we endure during our time here, we can look forward to eternity. Y'all know what that is, right? It's forever. You know, what's here today, a little bit, eternity is forever. I mean, it far outweighs our afflictions today. We can look forward to eternity dwelling with our Lord and Savior. Nothing can change this truth. Just listen to Paul in Romans 8, 31-39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, get this. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be reminded of those things. Encourage one another with those truths. Let me give you a third encouragement. Look back at your text in Ephesians 6.15. Notice he says, the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. It's third encouragement. You should remind yourself that the gospel brought you peace with God and with man. I would argue that Paul is primarily, primarily referencing peace with God because this is the priority, is it not? The Bible teaches that the unbeliever is at enmity with God. Uh, Romans 8, 5-8, we just read Romans 8 later, but before that, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the, the mind set on the flesh but is, is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Get that. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For even for it is not even able to do so. It can't. This is the unbeliever. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Psalm 5, 4 through 6, David proclaims. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Brothers and sisters, the unbeliever has no peace with God or with man. Romans, Romans 3, 15-18, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no, no fear of God before their eyes. Man, prior to knowing Christ, man hates God, and he hates his fellow man. He is quick to shed blood. Now you may say, that's a little harsh, preacher. But do the pages, do not the pages of history agree with Paul's accounting? We saw that film. We saw the film, right, of persecuted Christians. Hitler killing the Jews. That's a drop in the bucket. It, millions. Millions. Since 1973, I can't remember the count, but it's 60 million or something. What is it, brother? Over 60 million. We love to shed blood. Yet God in His mercy has chosen to save some and to grant them peace with Him. Listen to Romans 5.1. Paul writes, Therefore, having been justifi justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has paid the price. And He has brought us peace. Just listen to Colossians 13, 2, 13-14. 
When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us our, all our transgressions. Some of them? No. All of them, right? Well, listen to this. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Beloved, in Christ you have peace with God and you have peace with your fellow man. There is no longer any enmity. Just listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 14-16, same letter. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke, it, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them in one body through the cross by it, by, by it having put to death the enmity. It's a complicated way to say he brought them together. They made two into one, and he gave them peace. Jew and the Gentile, but it also applies across all cultures. Let me give you a quick fourth encouragement. As Christians, you should make it your aim that every aspect of your life reflect the gospel. As Christians, you should make it your aim that every aspect of your life reflects the gospel. And in Philippians 1.27, Paul encouraged the church at Philippi, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Obviously, this encouragement has implications on each individual here, each individual Christian. We are called to adorn ourselves with the gospel in our lives as individual Christians, but I would argue that that Paul has something even greater in mind here. I think we should see this in Ephesians 6 as well. Sure, Paul is talking about the individual's, individual Christian's armor, but we can never miss the, that we are all a part of the body of Christ. We have been fitted together in unity. We have been given one spirit in Christ Jesus. Now, get this. I, I suppose the best way to describe this is to give you an example. I don't normally do this with movies, but... I think this is a, a good example of, of what I'm trying to say. Many of you have seen the movie 300. In that movie, there's a famous battle scene which depicts the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, Leonidas of Sparta led the Spartans against the, an overwhelming force of the Persians. And in the, in the movie, the Spartans form a hoplite phalanx uh, to block the advancing Persians at the pass of Thermopylae. Now, this ph phalanx, I guess is how you pronounce it, was basically the shields and armor interlocking to form an almost immovable object. Now, you can imagine how formidable these Greek forces were as the Persians attempted to pass. There were, they, some estimates were that there were a, a million Persians. Now, uh, historians say there may have been more like 100 to 150,000, but they far outnumbered the Spartans e either way. That ultimately, they were only able to defeat the Spartans by flanking their position, by going around and, and coming in from behind. But what I want you to understand is, is that, that this should give you an understanding of the body of Christ as we unify around and stand firm on the gospel. You get the point. We, uh, we interlock together. We're unified. And as a unified church, as a church that's together, uh, we cannot be defeated by the enemy. In the case of Leonidas, his men were flanked by the enemy Persians. But we cannot be flanked. We cannot be destroyed. Yet we can be weakened when one of our own neglects to put on that full armor. You see, you see the point? It's not all about you. It's not all about you as an individual. But you as an individual weaken the whole when you fail to put on the armor. In my opening, I mentioned the difficulty of planting a church. 
I also mentioned that Satan would like nothing more than for us to fail. He would love for us to get lost in the details of establishing this, continuing to establish this church. He would like nothing more than for us to struggle with unity. He would enjoy uh, that we, if we forgot the true gospel. He would laugh if we forget to live out the gospel. He chuckles each time one of us strikes out at our own. Christian, we must stand firm. We must put on the full armor. You must know intimately the gospel. You must be able to recall it when you're going through difficult times. You must be able to remind yourself that you have peace with your Maker. And because of this peace, you no longer have enmity with God or your fellow man. Therefore, we should adorn the, the gospel as we stand firm against the evil that, that lurks. Now let me say something to the unbelievers here. You, if you don't believe, you do not have peace with God. You cannot have peace with God or with man unless you are in Christ. You cannot be in Christ unless you believe in Him. You must believe in His sinless life. You must believe in His sin-atoning death on a Roman cross. In the words of the Apostle Peter, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But this is the truth. This is what you need to understand. If he, if he was just put to death on the cross and never heard from again, he'd just be like any other person. Any other person. But Peter says, not this, not this one. But God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death since it, is, it was impossible for him to be held by its power. You see... Again, I'm, I'm speaking to you, the unbeliever. You must believe that He was raised from the dead and is now reigning on high on the throne of God. In the, the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 5, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God by believing, by believing in Christ's work on the cross and by believing that God truly raised him from the dead. As we close, if God has laid anything on your heart regarding this message, if you have any questions, please see me or one of the men. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again, or this uh, early afternoon. We thank you for your goodness to us. May we truly put on the full armor. May we gird our loins with the truth. Having that breastplate of righteousness on our chest. May we shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Father, we thank you for the truths of this scripture. Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us. In Christ's name.